How are you celebrating the 4th of July? Are you feeling independent? Um, no, not so much. This is uh, day four diaper off potty training for, for uh, your child, for, for, not for yourself. For my child, not, not for me. Affirmative action. This, this ruling directly affects people in your position. I'm glad that the ruling went the way that it did. Unfuckable hate nerds. Is this an Asian thing? This is not. <laughs> this is a white people thing. I would be mad how corporate pride has become. And now how, how contentious for no reason. Not even you know, corporate. I mean, I, it's just kink. It's just gross. This is gross. It's gross. Yeah. How should we change the system in a way that would be fairer? Just remember, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. In the culture war, there are no winners, just podcasters. Only a few are willing to risk their lives in the face of some of the dumbest ideas to have ever captured human civilization. Every week, I, Megan Daum, and Sarah Hader humbly accept this mission in order to bring you conversations that are equal parts stunning, brave, and unhinged. Welcome to a special place in hell. Happy 4th of July, Sarah. Yes, happy 4th. We are recording on the 4th, although it will be released in a couple of days. Yeah, but it's still 4th of July week. Mm. It's going to be celebrated all week, just as Pride oh, Month is going to continue to be celebrated all summer, even though it is over, which I'm celebrating personally. I had lunch with a couple of lesbians the other day, and we practically toasted to the end of Pride Month. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. I would be really irritated. If I was like an old gay, an elder gay, I would be. <laughs> yeah, they were elder gays. I would be, I would be mad. At, at what's happening and how corporate pride has become. And now how, how contentious for no reason. Not even corporate. It's just kink. It's just gross. It's gross. Yeah. It's not about whatever it was in the beginning. It's about something else now. And yeah, yeah. hard to hard to put your weight, you know, h- hard to support still, I think. Well, it's just you feel misrepresented. Yeah. So yeah. you wouldn't want to. Yeah. Anyway. So how are you celebrating the 4th of July? Are you feeling independent? Um, no, not so much. I've been, this is a uh, day four of diaper off, uh, potty training for, uh, for your child, not yourself for my child, not for me. Well, for me and for my child. Okay. We're doing it together. Cause I think that there, that is a category of pride. I believe is diaper the diaper people. off diaper on adult baby diaper lovers. I, be- yeah. I believe they're called. Okay. Right. Yeah. So that's not, this is a, not an adult baby. This is a baby baby. This is a baby baby. Yeah. And there's this method. It's so it's supposed to be a three day method where you just, you just take the diaper off and you let them run around in like a short shirt and no diaper. Like a crop top? Yeah. Well, you want it to be short so that they, there's no messes on the shirt or fewer messes. Let's see. This is getting more and more pride parade as you describe it. Okay. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, yeah. So it's it's day four of the, the three day training. It's supposed to work at the end of the third day. It did not work. So yeah, my life is very. But now what is what's the premise here? What's the logic? What's the logic of the three day? Yeah, tra- because I, we weren't trained this way, were we? Yeah, this is like a fast track method. It's supposed to be that you just take the diaper off. And as if the baby wants to go, you immediately like as they start like squirming, like you can tell they're about to go, take them to the potty, sit them on the potty, they go on the potty, and you do this every time. And you're just watching them like a hawk the whole time. You're just watching them. This is like training a puppy. Yeah, you have to be there with your eyes on their crotch the whole time. Can't look away. No Twitter even. 
So it was devastating oh my for God. me. Yeah, I don't know. It was really tough. Uh, but you're always with the baby so that you can catch it because it just happens instantly, you know? And turns out they pee all the time. They're just constantly peeing. Not like in one piece yeah. the way we do. We like hold it and we like, go all at once, but they're just like constantly going because you can in a diaper. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they have to learn to hold it in at longer periods. They have to learn to go on the potty and not make a mess because that's a bad experience, traumatic experience for them as well. Yeah. It's supposed to work. Okay. This is some kind of fast track thing. So yeah. is this like the advanced placement of potty training? Why do you think, is this an Asian thing? Is this what you're getting at? <laughs> this is not, <laughs> this is not an Asian thing. This is a, this is a white people thing, I think. But there is, there are Asian methods, which are interesting. My parents um, said that they potty trained me, though they started this method, like not this specific method, but like they started potty training me at like a year, which was, I feel like pretty early. Um, but there are Asian parents who, East Asian parents who start even before then, like when the kids are just a couple of months old. Like in like, utero, maybe. Does anybody do that? Maybe in utero. No, I think a little later than that. But like when they can set up, hmm. like, uh, but they, yeah. Really? But even, I think it's even, even earlier than that. I've seen, haven't you seen these little videos of these little Asian babies and they have these, these little onesies <laughs> with the butt, like a little cutout at the butt. You haven't seen them? No, I don't. I don't <laughs> I have a little watch those butt. kind of videos. No, that's... no, it's like the Asian grandparents were like training their kid to like poo and pee, and they like. But how do you do it if if they can't even walk? How how are how are they supposed to do that? Um, they condition them. I, well, the video I saw was like this grandma like held the kid up on a potty, and then she like whistled or something. <laughs> the kid went. <laughs> wow! <laughs> she... Like like a whistle. Like she yeah. blew a whistle. She whistled. An air horn. She just did a little whistle. And but I don't know if, if this is all Asians all the time, but this is something I saw. And then I was I was reading about how in China they potty train very early in bits and pieces. But yeah, pretty early because they, they think diapers are disgusting. OK, you know what I mean? I don't want to dwell on this, but because this came up another time with us. So like, you know how they don't have toilets in so many parts of Asia, even like a nice, even a nice restaurant, there could be like a hole in the floor in the fancy bathroom. So is it easier for a child to get potty trained without like the scary toilet? Mm. Just have a hole. I like the holes. I mean, they're, I think I would have been less afraid. I think most kids would be less afraid. I think they're just it, easier it's to like go being on. Outside. Yeah, they're easier to go on. They're just easier to yeah. go on. That's what it is. Like they're easier to go on. You, especially number two, I think it's easier. That's why they sell the squatty potty. That's what we talked about in, the, in a podcast before. Right. So from that perspective, I, I don't know, because as a kid, I found the American toilets better because I was afraid I'd fall in the other ones because you're tiny. And the, the American toilet. No, the other toilets. The other toilets are bigger because there's like a, it's not a tiny hole. It's a big hole. Yeah, no, they think they're going to fall in. That's exactly it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I was going to fall in. So um, I think this is going to become the new status symbol. Like in a ha like if you're really sophisticated, you do not have toilets. No, no, no. It's the hole. other way. It's the other way. The hole is scarier because the hole is pretty wide. Oh, yeah. The hole is oh. pretty large and you have to squat over it. And if you like oh, your I squat see. fails, you know, your legs fail. You're going to fall in. Okay. And not everybody has like great squatting muscles. I mean, yeah, you got to be, if you do Pilates or bar method or something, you'd be very good at it. You get it. pretty good at it. Yeah, you get pretty good at it. Um, okay. All right. Those, but All right. I got to think about this. Okay. I have the kind of potties that are like, they look like little toilets. <laughs> and they're really, they're really cute. They just look like a little teeny tiny toilets. Um, okay. A little flush, except it plays a little jingle too. Um, oh my yeah, there's God. some, there's some potties where you, if you, when you go in them, they sing to you. 
That's terrifying. How do you expect to get anything done? No, it's great. That was just a way of getting an adult off the toilet as quickly as possible. Yeah. I would think. Yeah. But getting a child on is tough. And this is this is a way to do it. All right. Well, so this is another overachieving Sarah thing, Asian thing. Is it? Um, yeah. Well, this uh, is very germane to what we're going to talk about. So uh, we're going to talk about affirmative action. This is the SCOTUS ruling. And um, then we're going to move on to uh, something uh, maybe not entirely different. Maybe it's totally related. Uh, unfuckable hate nerds. Yeah, it's a tablet piece. I think they're totally, these things are actually related. Yeah. Now that I think of it. Okay. okay. Well, that's, yeah, that's the the second bit. That has to do with uh, men, uh, sad, nerdy men, and how hard it is for them to get laid. And- Especially if they couldn't get into an Ivy League school. Exactly. Because of their race. Uh, and then we have uh, the bonus at the end, yeah. which not all of you get access to, but some of you special people do. Yeah. And what are we going to talk about there? We're going to talk about another very controversial question, uh, and that is whether 25-year-old <laughs> right. women are more attractive than 35-year-old women. Right. So this is a Twitter controversy that's been so stupid Twitter controversy. It's been going on for days, um, and we're going to give our takes. The question, the answer might surprise you. So Probably yeah. won't, but it might. It might. And, uh, I have some surprising things to say. Okay. So All right. And then anyway, in the time that people are listening to this, they can become a paying subscriber mm-hmm. and be able to hear that. All right. So okay. let's get go, to it. Let's get. Let's... Okay. Yeah. So uh, affirmative action. This is exactly the, this ruling directly affects people in your position uh, or people who were in your position as a very hyper achieving, brilliant South Asian. Uh, this must have hit home, as they say. Yeah, I mean, what were your thoughts? I don't know if I feel strongly any any one way, except that I mean, I'm glad it's been uh, that the ruling went the way that it did. I'm surprised to see so many defenses of it, of the ruling or of uh, how, how of affirmative works. action. Still, you know, so many people yeah, mourning yeah. the Obamas talking about it. Um, yeah, it's a catastrophic day, right? And I wish it had just gone a little bit more silently, but I guess that's that was it's a naive thing to hope for given how touchy the subject is. I do think it's one of those things that way more people pretend to be uh, for affirmative action than actually for the practice. Because I remember when I was in college, uh, I had one really weird experience, really telling experience. I think when it came to affirmative action, I had a little uh, political science class um, where we had, we were assigned a paper, um, to take a position of, on affirmative action and pro or, or, you know, for it or, or against it and to submit it to the, to the professor. And he would grade it, um, like blindly. I don't know how he did it, but somehow he, uh, when he was initially grading it, he wouldn't, uh, look at our names in case people were concerned, I suppose, <laughs> about having their names mm. attached to it. Regardless, so he asked for these for these papers, we submitted them. And then the next day we had a discussion about it. Um, And he talked, he came to class and he was, I remember him saying he was so surprised that, you know, at such a liberal uh, university with so many young people um, that the majority, the vast majority of the papers were against affirmative action and sometimes very like strongly against it. And I think there was either only one person or just like two people who were for affirmative action. And I thought that was 
he was really surprised by that. I was a little surprised by that. And then the discussion that followed afterwards, I think was a lot more open than it would have been otherwise. Like, I think there was something about the fact that we knew going into it that the most of the people around us agreed with us that there wasn't the same kind of stigma or shame for piping up and sharing your opinion. I mean, I think a lot of what happens when it comes to affirmative action is virtue signaling and preference falsification, especially when it comes to white liberals who are doing this all the time, I think. You know, there was a, um, a Gallup poll that uh, was this is from oh, 2019, and uh, it found that affir- American support for affirmative action programs rises. And if you look at exactly how it was rising and who it was, right, like which are the groups um, were becoming more pro affirmative action? Well, uh, both women and men uh, grew, but women seem to to grow a little more. Women are still more pro affirmative action than men, and white liberals seem to be the people, uh, the white increase seems to be what really caused this, this change. Yeah. Like what was really motivating the change was uh, the gains in support that came from uh, white Americans. Yeah. I mean, I saw some polling that 65% of black Americans oppose affirmative action. Yeah. I'm not sure what year that poll came from, but yeah. relatively recent. They're all over the um, place too, because it yeah. depends on what you use. If you use the word affirmative action, you're going to get a different result than right. if you use racial preferences, you're going to get usually a far more negative response. And, and this is a, such a, this is a problem with polling. I really take polls with a grain of salt. I wish this is something that we learned to be, you know, this is something that we learned well after the 2016 election when we found that mm. all the polls that said that Donald Trump was definitely going to lose um, or was mo- so likely to lose because they had talked to all these people and they were talking about how much they hated him. And it turns out that obviously he wasn't that hated by so many people. Obviously, some people were lying about their preferences and lying to pollsters, um, not just that pollsters didn't gauge it properly by talking to the right populations but also i yeah, think that they no, were lying they to pollsters flat out lie yeah what was the racial makeup of the class that had this poll and in this discussion do you remember of the class that had this your assi- class like yeah when you had to do your assignments and you were surprised in the class that you were um in. it was mostly white people but like white kids but there were a good like sprinkling of minorities and it seemed like majority of the minorities were against it too i know mm-hmm. that one of the like very few perhaps the only person or maybe one of the two people who spoke up uh was black like for affirmative action okay. herself yeah and i felt really bad for her i remember feeling really bad for her because she really felt i think she was surprised by how many people were against it and I think she felt very like threatened and upset about it. And I, I understood where she was coming from. Or I understood why she was feeling that way, because I think people lie to people like that all the time. And this was college. This was college. Sorry, this was college. This was college. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if uh, that's so complicated because I wonder if she felt that she had gotten in right because of affirmative action. But then, yeah, like how much had she even because it's one of these things that you you really don't want to think about. No. I mean, if you even suspect that you have that kind of advantage, it's a cope, as you would say. And I would call it like psychological self-preservation to just keep your mind away from it. Like think about other things mm-hmm. because otherwise you will go insane. 
Um, yeah, there's really no alternative. I mean, you could just like decide, renounce your whole life and uh, say, I'm stepping aside because I had this unfair advantage, be self-flagellating. Or you just don't believe it's unfair. You know, you adopt a whole set of politics that yeah. tell you that it wasn't unfair to begin with, um, that it was it, birth was, you know, at birth, you, it was you were set back um, due to your race in this country. And since then, you and your family have been carrying the weight of this. And now you you deserve this leg up. So I, th- I think that's the that's the best cope, really. Yeah. And that's I mean, one of the things I've been seeing in the discourse is people say, yes, obviously, Asians have been at a huge disadvantage. Um, this has been immensely unfair. However, an Asian person still doesn't have to walk through the world as a black person. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, even if the Asian person has to go to a state school or doesn't get into the top tier elite, the massive advantage they have just by virtue of not being black more than makes up for it. And I just, I can't believe that people are still talking this way. Yeah. I mean, I can believe it, but it's just, it's so embarrassing it's just and it it feels very untrue especially when you look at the kinds of people who are saying it i remember having arguments about things like about affirmative action but these kinds of racial allotment type tokenism and that kind of thing with black progressives who were so biracial that they were lighter skinned than me you know what i mean like the, like yeah. technically black people you know telling me you know that they're super oppressed and they're way more oppressed and, and i I don't feel like if I go to a very racist part of the country, I'm going to be treated a whole lot better. I grew up Muslim in uh, post 9-11 America. It wasn't a fantastic time for people like me. I don't see how that that experience cannot be the same or at least similar to the to the black experience of at least some blacks, right? Like the biracial blacks, the ones who are growing up in more, yeah. more liberal parts of the country. It feels like there's such a flattening of if you're black, definitely you're having this harder time. If you're Asian, definitely you're having an easier time. Yeah. There's so much, it depends yeah. on so much as to what your personal experience is. It felt to me like just a, a very simplified look at race. Yeah. That didn't really map onto my reality. Well, it's been going with the woman conversation. Mm-hmm. Everything has been flattened. Right. I mean, the earth is flat in this respect. Right. So if you are a woman, you are automatically right. um, at a disadvantage or feel threatened or feel less than or have been told that you are less than. I mean, yeah. it's just a it's a gross generalization that has nothing to do with any relevant individual experience. But obviously it is the case that sometimes it is beneficial to be a woman and sometimes it is beneficial Yes. To be a person of color. What race hoaxes? Some often. I would say often. What? Uh, right. More than sometimes. For a woman. Okay, this is interesting. For a woman, definitely. I would say often, yeah. For a woman, I would say more often than not. Yeah. It is beneficial to be a woman. I would agree with that. Especially if you're hot, but we're going to get to that later. Sure, yeah. But in a social context, definitely. Like in, in the social world, I think so. I agree. But yeah. what racial, the, 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 these race hoaxers tell us, these fake brown people, you know, fake black people who are just Rachel Dolezal's of the world have been so many. (laughs) I feel like every other month, a new one comes out, a new, you know, Native American professor. Yeah. Yeah. Why hasn't Rachel Dolezal weighed in on this? I haven't seen an op-ed from her. No, not yet. Uh, She should come on the pod. She's probably writing it. She should come on. She should. This is her space. Rachel, if you're listening, please. Special place just for her. But in a fun way. <laughs> yeah. Um, what race these hoaxers tell us is that they have judged. And you know that they have judged because of the way they have behaved, because of what they're trying to pass as, that they think that there is an advantage to being seen as 
Native American or Black or Brown or whatever it is this person is pretending to be. So obviously there are contexts in the United States where it is beneficial to be a brown person, black person, POC, whatever. So much so that a white woman would give up her privilege and do it. Why is it always white women? Do white men don't not do this? Well, white women are the new white men. Yeah, but white, I mean, do, look, white men don't ha- race. Don't, they don't they don't pretend to be brown, do they? Sometimes they do. I, oh. guess, I haven't heard I haven't seen I haven't heard of one. I'm sure there are, are one or two um, ex- example. I mean, Soul Man. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. <laughs> Was that it? No, don't get that reference. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, it's obviously there's a whole history of passing in the other direction. Right, but it changed, right? And that should tell us something. Yeah. It changed. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, so, but would you say that it's basically, it's advantageous to be in a minority position when it comes to like applying for something and getting picked for something? Like if you are applying to a school that already has too many women, you are going to be at a disadvantage as a woman. Mm-hmm. If you're applying, okay, like if you are trying to be like a professional ballet dancer, for instance, yeah, it is, you're in a much worse position as a woman. The most excellent ballet dancer, ballerina in the world is going to have a much harder time getting like a professional dancing gig than a pretty mediocre male ballet dancer. Right. Just because there aren't enough. It's this is a scarcity. Right. But that situation makes more sense to me. That kind of affirmative action makes more sense to me because for certain plays, you need males. You know, you need a in a company, you might need a certain amount of male dancers because you need them to fill a certain role. Okay. Right. And lift the female, you know, ballerinas up the leap, whatever into whatever they do. I don't know. But in that regard, it affirmative action makes sense. If, if you were to prioritize males, but then if you were to do that, oh, well, we need a black ballerina. That doesn't make sense because you don't need them to be, you just need them to be good and you need them to be female. Right. You don't need them to be a specific race. I mean, this has happened in the ballet world oh, a really? lot, by the way. Okay. And there was that whole, so Misty Copeland, who uh, I think she was the first black uh, ballet dancer in the New York City ballet. She was a, like a spokesperson for Under Armour. There was mm-hmm. a athletic clothing company. Mm-hmm. and. Um, it, it, the whole ad campaign was based on the idea that she had gotten this letter from a ballet company after auditioning saying that she just wasn't good enough and she would never make it as a ballet dancer because she didn't have the right kind of body type and because she was a black woman. And everyone just like fell for this and thought it was such an amazing story that she had overcome this uh, adversity. And it apparently was just completely fabricated by the ad uh, agency. It's impossible to, I mean, you would get in everywhere, yeah. right? And I think so you were, you just mentioned I to mean, me. I mean, now you would. I don't, maybe I mean, not in the maybe, 70s or 80s. No, I mean, yeah, certainly in yeah, the last yeah. 20 years. Yeah, things have yeah. changed. But in more recent times, definitely, that this is, it's an advantage in so yeah. many different fields and professions and contexts. Uh, I think it's interesting to me that people still feel like they, either they want to deny it or they want to say that, well, it's been so bad for so long that now all this preferential treatment is actually just getting us we're just getting even now. Yeah. You're getting even by having everybody mistrust you. You know, John McWhorter had a good piece actually just dropped uh, today on the 4th. And he talked about, you know, growing up middle class in Philadelphia in the 80s as a as a black kid and, you know, really smart, really good student, but maybe not like excellent, excellent, absolute top tier student. He had a lot of hobbies. He played in the orchestra. He was like, you know, well-rounded and and his mother was a, a black academic. And he talks about growing up, you know, having it be pretty clear to him that he wouldn't have to work as hard to get into a good school as a white kid because he was black. And he talks about really kind of coasting 
uh, I mean, this is a high level coasting from John McWhorter. I think <laughs> not all coasting is created equal, but in t- he said, really, he was the beneficiary of a lot of, um, a lot of uh, advancements. And then said it wasn't until he was a graduate school, graduate student and actually teaching graduate students that he had to face the fact that he was not as rigorous in his linguistics career as others. And in fact, he had a very particular specialty and I, he had to catch up. And I, I've heard him talk about this on the podcast with Glenn Lowry too. Like, you know, he's had, um, he's been very aware of, um, he's got some imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. I think that's the only way to put it. Yeah. And he's very transparent about it. And I think, uh, look, I think a lot of people do for whatever reason. And this gets back to what I was talking about before. Like if you have imposter syndrome, you really have sort of, you know, you've got two ways to go. You can either completely out yourself and uh, just fall on your sword, or you can continue to pretend just to salvage. Or you just, you know, you adopt the politics that make it seem like it's not, you know, it's not as bad or, but, but I think ultimately you do know if you can't keep up with your peers you find it different. Grades are one way to tell that you can't keep up with them, but there are other ways too. You know, you can just talk to people, you can have conversations, you can, you know, be in, as part in part of, as part of seminars in college and know that you can't really keep up with the pace of things or whatever. And I, you know, it's interesting to, it's interesting to read this because he's, I'm going to quote, because he said that I grew up upper middle class. So not middle class, upper middle class in Philadelphia. McWhorter? McWhorter, that's what he said. He says upper middle class? He says upper middle class as okay. in Philadelphia right. in 1980s. As early as high school, I picked up from remarks of my mother's who taught at a university, as well as comments in the air at my school, that black kids didn't have to achieve perfect grades and test scores in order to be accepted at top, at top colleges. As a direct result, I satisfied myself with being an A- minus or B-plus student, pursuing my nerdy hobbies instead of seeking the academic mountain top mountaintop i was pretty sure it wouldn't affect my future in the way that it might for my white peers yeah i mean i it's interesting to read this because i kind of had a similar experience but my conclusion was kind of the opposite which was i recognized pretty early on in the conversations i started to have with uh you know other kids in my little poor little apartment complex uh, other asian south asian kids that there was probably no chance that I was going to get into an elite college, not just because, you know, it, obviously it's, it's competitive, but because it's also expensive and we were poor. And then on top of that, unlike the, you know, our, our black and Hispanic neighbors who were as poor as us, we were not going to get a racial advantage. We were going to get a racial disadvantage um, yeah. that we would have to work harder than even the white kids who were you know, uh, a social class ahead of us, you know, the, who were making more money, who were his par- whose parents were living mm-hmm. in um, nicer homes, like middle class families. Um, we would have to beat those guys even, you know, like b- because of our races. And there's a certain there was an understanding that there was a quota and in, not a direct they're not explicit about it, but that there was a quota of how many Asians they were going to they were going to accept. And we were competing with each other. And we knew, we know, we're like, okay, that sucks. Like, that's hard. <laughs> I would like to compete yeah. with the white kids. I would like to compete with like the rest of the student body, the other underrepresented or the other minorities who were as poor as me, but I wasn't going to compete with them. I was going to compete with the Asians, um, which was tough. Um, and so I kind of felt like, all right, I'm never going to get in. You know, I'm never going to, I'm not going to make it. I don't have the resources. I don't have the, you know, privileged background. I don't have, my parents don't know anything about the college application process. I have to tell them, you know, what I, what they need to do. I used to fill out, you know, forms and everything that parents are supposed to do, but I would just fill it all out since I was a kid. They would just sign it because they could, they're like, okay, I don't know what, I don't really know what this is. It's going to take a long time for me to 
understand what's going on. They were, I mean, they were smart people. It just wasn't, this wasn't their culture. This wasn't their native language. It was just tough for them to understand this context. So this was something that I had to do on my own. Um, And as a result, I made a lot of mistakes. If I could do it all over again, I would do it very differently. I would write my essay differently. I would take different- What would you write your essay on? I guess, you know, as per uh, yours and mine past conversation. um, How institutions have fallen. Woke institutions. uh, uh, Yeah. That was- I think I would I would emphasize how disadvantaged I was, I guess. But I don't know if it would have helped because I still was Asian. You know, I was just one smart. And a lot of Asians are disadvantaged. Right. I mean, right. Asians live in, I mean, in, I don't know if this is true across the board. In New York City, Asians uh, have the highest poverty level among people who are working. Asian poverty is much, much higher, I think, than most people realize because they get out of it within one generation. They get out of it quickly, right. Um, yeah. And they sometimes get out of it within, like, in that generation. So that my, yeah. that happened to my parents. Like, we started off with literally nothing, 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 and stayed that way for quite some time. But my parents worked hard, and there were steps backs, but there were also step forwards. And now they live a nice, comfortable lifestyle in a way that, you know, I would have, I would have loved to grow up the way, you know, my baby sister grew up. She did, she grew up in a totally different um, family and environment because by the time she was older, we had a lot more means. And then we also had sort of this institutional knowledge from me. Right? I was, yeah. I had already gone through it all. I knew the classes to take. I knew the pitfalls in the system. I could tell her and she could improve and she did. Uh, so there's, yeah. you know, I, I, I just knew early on that I was never going to get into the top schools. I just, I knew it. And so the effect on me was also to do what, to do um, as same effect of as John McCorder has, which was satisfying yourself with being, with not achieving the, the very best grades that I knew I could if I had put in an effort. Um, I started skipping a lot more classes, um, like skipping school a lot more often. Really? Yeah. You skipped school? Yeah, like, but like in a smart way. What did you do? Way. Were you like smoking under the no, nature? No, I would, I would go to the library, Megan. That's the kind of, yeah. that's the kind of person. Because this is a boring class. This teacher sucks. I don't need it. I don't need to hear the lesson. It's not, my grade's not going to suffer. Uh, and I'm going to go to, you know, the orchestra. I would go to the orchestra class, hang out. I was friends with the band teachers, hang out with them. I mean, so I'm curious because, you know, in this lawsuit, it was revealed. I mean, this is back in 2000. I mean, this has been going on for so long, but it was revealed at some point along the way that Harvard evaluated applicants according to like, you know, a series of traits. And Mm. so there were things like likability, helpfulness, kindness, courage, positive personality. And at one point, uh, there was an admissions officer at MIT, I think, that was caught referring to um, Asians as textureless math grinds, that kind of thing. Like, I'm wondering how you felt about that, like, as a young Asian person. Like, did you have a sense of yourself as, like, being perceived as not having as good a personality as somebody else? Not until later. But South Asians generally don't have that. Right. They're not. You're not as bad as Chinese. Yeah. It is true that we will not get into Ivy Leagues. At, at, at I think it's even at some point, I don't know when I saw a chart that like broke down even uh, Asians into like specific like East Asian, like South Asian, that kind of thing, and looked at their rates at acceptance. And my people are actually, it, it seemed like from the, that data, I haven't been able to find it since, that uh, South Asians get it, get hit really hard. I think the hardest yeah. at Ivy League schools. 
we are different. I think as like, I remember I had a lot of, I had a lot of AP courses that I took. I had a lot of Asian friends, um, South Asian and East Asian. It seemed to me there was a personality difference. I don't between know if it was East, between South Asians and East Asians. Yeah. And I don't know if it was a cultural thing. I think sometimes it can be. Sometimes it's just like these cultural differences, your at-home ex- environments um, bleeding into what you do at school and how you behave at school, um, or there's something else going on. But the South Asians were louder, not louder than the white kids. The white kids no. were way louder. The white kids... So, okay, so here's the other thing. <laughs> there was enough Asians, South and East Asians, in my middle school and high school that we sort of self-segregated a little bit. I hung out with the white kids like more than half the time. I had a lot of white friends and my Asian friends were like suspicious of this. They thought it just kind of made me like, maybe I was stupid. <laughs> that's why right. I was, right. you're slamming. Like, I'm, I'm dumb. And that's why I'm hanging out with the, you mm-hmm. know, dumb white kids. Um, or you're trying to feel superior. You want to be the best one. So Yeah. I don't, I, I think they just, they also, some of them just assumed I, I remember there was one girl who was um, Indian and we started hanging out. We, we went to middle uh, to high school together, but I didn't hang out with her. We only ha- started hanging out in college. And she, one day she was like, huh, you're, you're brown. You're like, you're Daisy, and I'm like, yes. It's just, but you never, you didn't really hang out with us that much. You hung out with the white kids. I thought you were like Hispanic. Uh, I was like, oh, she thought um, you were Hispanic. Yeah, uh, and I was like, I, I, I get it. I get why you think that, but no, I am not. But it was, it did feel like um, my Asian friends definitely prioritized being good in class, you know, participating well, doing the homework, doing a good job, getting good grades. Like there was, I didn't see a lot of parental influence, although that's, you know, the whole tiger mom thing is something people talk about all the time. And I think it is true for some parents. Um, I don't know if it needs to be true if your peer group is the one that's policing, you know, or and not even policing, but everyone has the expectation that everyone's going to do well. Um, and everybody care. you know, we have these values. I think that's a bigger influence. And from what I understand about, you know, the social science on, you know, what affects the way kids develop, is it the parental influence or is it the peer, their peer group and their peer environment? I think that it makes sense from my experience because the Asian kids were, they were we were doing homework together. When I would hang out with them, we were in, you know, study groups. Yeah. Yeah, but okay, but so I mean I remember being in high school and observing like the Asian kids, especially the first generation ones, the ones who, you know, had come over, mm-hmm. their parents mm-hmm. were, you know, barely English speakers. Some of them were ridden so hard yeah. by their parents. Yeah. And it was honestly upsetting. Mm. I mean, it felt abusive. Mm. And, you know, there was this whole thing of like the parents, they want nothing more than for the kids to assimilate because that's why they came there. But at the same time, if they assimilate, then they're slacking off and being too American and not studying and not getting the highest grades in order to get into Harvard. I mean, it was sort of like, be this, you know, go from A to D, but don't go to B to C. Like it was just, and it's like, it was, I was so, um, it just made me angry, frankly, at, at the parents. Mm-hmm. I mean, I understand that situation, uh, but like, it just seems so unfair. Like yeah. those kids, they never, they, there are definitely things that they were like not allowed to do mm-hmm. that did affect their personalities. Like they, you didn't see them dating a lot yeah, or yeah. having like going, having like, yeah. opinions about culture. Yeah. And, I mean, not saying that that's that important, but yeah. that's what leads to these stereotypes. And that's yeah. what, where the textureless grind comes in. and. It's I'm I'm kind of mad at the parents about it, frankly. I agree that there's there's definitely too much of it. The tiger mom thing is is real. And, you know, in India, I don't know about 
China uh, as much. I know about Chinese Americans. I don't know about China as much. But um, in India, there's always, you know, these like stories that come out from time to time about kids that kill themselves. Um, oh, yeah. You know, for Before exams, exam times and stuff like that. Ugh. So th- there's definitely a cultural emphasis on academic performance that has these like at the edges, it definitely has these people who are borderline abusive to their children. But I, I think those are the kinds of people who would be they would it's a personality thing almost, you know, like that every culture has its points of like, this is where this is what gets you social status. This is what's valuable. And you will have some people at the edges of those cultures that will value that so much that they will ride their kids, um, you know, just just be brutal abusive almost i mean it's kind of like the opposite spectrum of beauty pageant right 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 that's what i mean like it's deeply upsetting this is just how some people compete you know and if they had if they were in a different culture they would compete in a different way they would still abuse their kids in order to get status unless there were somebody else they could abuse to get status you know unless it was it was their husband you know know. getting a getting a so it's just i think it's a way in which it kind of a personality manifests. I do agree that it's kind of a little bit of a problem. But at the same time, I think it is better to have that problem as a group than to not have it. Because when you're a new immigrant to a country, especially, it's it's not enough to do as well as the average American. Because yeah. you don't have, your parents don't have retirement funds. You, you don't have a fallback at all. You don't have, you know, something, if something horrible happens, you're all screwed. And I knew that. Yeah. And I had the weight of that on my shoulders all the time, thinking that we didn't have backup plans. Um, that we really just, it, you have this one shot and you have to make it. You have to make it because there isn't going, going to be another shot because you're just like teetering at the edge of yeah. being, of not quite poverty, but yeah, but just being, uh, you know, living day to day in a much more miserable way than you could. Be. I mean, I knew people whose, you know, dad had a heart attack at 50. You know, it's really common yeah. in South Asians to have heart attacks um, really early. Our food's terrible. It's so bad for you. Um, and on top of that, they don't value exercise. But it, there's also some, seems like mm-hmm. there's some genetic component as well. I'm not sure about the exact breakdown, but South Asian men often have heart attacks early. And I knew somebody whose dad um, had a heart attack. He passed away. And, you know, it was an immigrant family. So what were they going to do? They're mom did not have you know she was a housewife what was she gonna do where was she gonna work and there are these kids who are teenagers at that time who had to figure out how to get part-time jobs I mean the mom moved in with like some extended family member that was living you know a, a city or something away but the, the point is is that it's easy to be ruined when you don't have a huge social network in a new country yeah. you don't have the funds to you know back you up and you don't have the institutional knowledge that you know, others might, you might not know about the welfare programs. You might not know about, you know, how to, how to get access to social services. To how to work the system. Right, right. You don't know how to do that. So I think it is, poverty is a much scarier thing for them. It seems much scarier and it actually is much scarier as an immigrant. And also they're coming from a context, you know, in a part of the world where really there's not a lot of ways to break out and there's not a lot of prosperity to go around anyway. Um, And this is one way to do it. And the difference between a middle class lifestyle and like, you know, being the being a doctor is actually the difference between living well and living badly, you know, because middle class is not actually a good place to be. That was something I had to teach my parents. I had to talk to them about it. I had to say, like, you know, being middle class in America is okay. (laughs) Like it's actually you're going to be you're you're fine. You have you know, you can have a retirement account. You can you can be okay. It's not it's not scary. It's not the end of the world the way that they presumed that it was, because in Pakistan, there really isn't much of a middle class 
you just do well or you don't. Right. Yeah. Well, I actually thought the best piece uh, about this was uh, in The New Yorker by Jay Caspian Kang. Mm -hmm. We can link to it. But, you know, basically he's he's reminding us what I think we all know, but is sometimes forgotten is that this has been window dressing from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I mean, the way this has been handled by these schools, it's the vast majority of uh, or at least a significant number of the black kids who are in these uh, elite schools are the children of uh, wealthy immigrants from Africa, places like Nigeria or high achieving African-American families. Biracial, often very biracial. Yes. Like often yes. I go, I have one black grandparent and yeah. now I'm putting black. And I don't think this is not the spirit of why we like the, to the extent that I'm sympathetic to affirmative action. I'm sympathetic to American descendants of slaves. That's why I'm. That's the group I'm yeah. sympathetic to. Yeah. I'm not sympathetic to Jamaican immigrants in the same way. I'm not sympathetic to Nigerian, you know, sons of billionaires in the same way. I have a sympathy for this for a specific group that grew up in America, and there doesn't seem to be. There wasn't a lot of effort to make sure that this program really benefited them, and in fact, it didn't benefit them. No, no. I mean, yeah, as much. Yeah. No, I mean, he writes, it was doomed from the moment it started because it was stripped. Affirmative action was stripped of his, of its moral force. Mm -hmm. So, right. you know, it, it was instead this diversity thing. It, it, that's why the, the conversation yeah. becomes about how how valuable it is to have a diverse student body, because then you're going to meet all these wonderful people and learn all this stuff. About, but, you know, my experience was that everybody was self-segregating. That was my experience. Yeah. I don't know how no, rich I, I mean, was. He, I think he makes a great point. I mean, the fact is that Harvard has just like an enormous endowment. I'm just going to read a few sentences in this, this piece. You know, he says, Harvard did not have to pursue such a comical vision of social justice. It could have vastly expanded its class sizes, relaxed its admission standards, and cut off its pipelines from exclusive private schools. It could have opened its doors to hundreds of community college transfers. If Harvard were truly committed to increasing access to elite education, it could have invested a fraction of its $53 billion endowment in free college preparatory academies across America and guided hundreds of poor Black and Latino students through the university gates. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think, I think if you look at it, there are many ways to look at affirmative action, but I mean, so much of it seems to come down to, it's not clear that it's benefiting the people that it's supposed to benefit. Um, I mean, even Blacks as a group, much less descendants of slaves, um, yeah. it clearly creates a tension and animosity that we don't need in society. It creates a shadow on the people that do graduate, anybody who graduate, whether or not they belong, you know, so there, there is a cohort of yeah. black kids in America who go to Yale and they belong to at Yale. You know, they are that good. They belong. They deserve to be there. They would have been there even if they were white, but now there's a shadow that's yeah, cast we'll over them. Know. There's a doubt. Yeah. I mean, it, it, internally, but also externally, people are thinking about it. It's really naive to imagine that people who have gone through the college system in the United States um, who know what, you know, the realities of of these kinds of racial quotas or racial advantages uh, would not think that when they saw a black MFA graduate or uh, or or anything. Yeah, really anything. Yeah. yeah. Any anything, I mean, at all. I, anything, engineering, medical school, right. law school. And then you would doubt them. You would doubt them. And, you know, as an employer, you might doubt them. Uh, you might not give them the, the critical projects because you doubt them. Yeah. Um, no, it's at some point you would also be set up right to doubt them. 
if yeah. if indeed there is a mismatch that's going on with affirmative action, and we know that that's the case, although it, this is contested in social science, I don't feel like it's actually contested. Um, it's fairly clear if you actually have experience at any selective college in the United States that there is a mismatch going on. But it's there's a cascading effect of the mismatch too, where you know elite colleges will take up they will take up the kids who deserve to go to elite schools. Then okay, that's not enough. That's only a few percentages. You need more black people, so you're going to take the kids who should be going to you know a tier two school um, or tier three and a tier three school. All these different cohorts of kids you're going to take in to fill in whatever uh, percentage of black students you think yeah. makes your school looks good. But what does that leave for the less selective colleges? You know, they actually have nobody that matches with them mm-hmm. at all. At least the lead schools get to have some amount of black graduates that deserve to be there because they have they are matched. But but because they pull in so many other kids as well to just meet their diversity, you know, yeah. Well, anyway, it's, it's, just, it's, it's really a setup. Yeah. I mean, it's actually it's it feels quite cynical it does um, from certain angles i would be it's a trap i would be very uh distressed yeah and i i think though it's not gonna i mean this is gonna change things for like three years no not even but not mean, e- all, yeah. all anyone has to do is write in their right. in their essay mention i mean it's it's this is a formality yeah actually yeah we've i mean it's good that it was struck down it's good that it's clear that this is not you know no yeah. longer something the court um, considers permissible. Um, so they just have to be careful in how they do it. But of course, they're still going to do it. They're still yeah. going to find a way to pad certain numbers. They did that in the California systems. You know, it was ruled unconstitutional, what, 20 something years ago. And it started in the 90s, yeah, it, more than that. Yeah. yeah. Initially, it it caused a drop in black enrollment only at the top, top colleges, not in general, you know, not overall. They just went to a college that matched the, mm-hmm. them as students a little bit better. They still went to, many of them still went to good colleges. Many of them still, you know, graduated. It was, but but the elite, at the very, very elite schools, you saw fewer, fewer black kids for a while um, until they found a way to, to get around it and to get them in. Anyway, yeah. I think if we, you know, what we really are losing is just a, there's the, the spirit of meritocracy that doesn't matter anymore to um, um, the American educational system, which I find really, really alarming. I mean, it's again, it's like this inversion of what you're supposed to care about. You know, the thing that the thing that you should value most, you no longer you're you no longer value. The admissions officers should be the people who are thinking, who is the best who is the kid with the most promise you know we're looking at kids with most promises but they're not looking right. at that they're not they're that's not what they're trying to do no i mean I, we should talk about this another time but then i'm thinking like okay well how do you measure is it only a test do you not care about people's writing do you not care about their if they have some very particular talent i mean the fact is john mcwhorter is a more interesting person than he would have been if he hadn't been pursuing his hobbies and instead was taking all AP classes and getting all A pluses except for a few A minuses. But the difference is, is that he could when he needed to, you know what I mean? And I think that what's never going to happen and probably should happen is something that approximates an IQ test a little bit better. Like that's, that's, (laughs) that's what should happen, but that's, Never, never going to happen. That's, I mean, that's pure evil. But why? You know, because that's what the SAT is trying to do to some degree. So if you have a measure of like general competency plus uh, grit and determine, you know, hard work, and there's another way that you're measuring this and then creativity, and that's, there's another way you're maybe measuring that and that's writing or whatever. But there, 
why aren't we more clear and upfront and direct about what we are looking for in a student and what makes for a good student? I mean, John McCorder is very smart, regardless of what grade he got. And that's, that's clear with his, you know, with who he's become now. And that matters. Are we allowed to talk about that? Are we allowed to, are we allowed to say that being, being smart matters and often academic, doing well in academic environments, you know, it correlates with being, uh, with, with being intelligent. But I wonder if highly, highly, I'm thinking of like Elon Musk kind of people like, you know, extreme geniuses notoriously do poorly in school, right? Right. So that, what captures them? Einstein was considered. What captures them, right? Like what what captures people like him? It's interesting because I I found that for the people that I knew, um, so I was in the gifted program uh, back in when I, in K through 12. And the gifted kids were, very unique bunch. Um, did you have experience with the gifted program? Yeah, I was in it. I think I flunked out of it at a certain point. You can't I flunk was out in of it. it. When I was, Are you- yeah, no, I, I don't know. I was in it when I, and it I must have been something different. You can't flunk out. I was in, in it in elementary it. school. I, I mean, this is embarrassing. Maybe it's I think different. I got, I think I like peaked. I think, <laughs> I think I like no, peaked no, in no, no. Grade it must something. have been something different. It could have been an advanced <laughs> course because you can't I, flunk I out of okay. GT. Once you're, once you're in GT, okay. you're in GT. All right. Um, okay. uh, well. because what they have with the gift, at least in modern gifted programs is it's basically, they have, yes. a, they have a test that's like an IQ test. And then you are in the gifted program forever, unless you choose to drop out, unless you choose to say, okay. I don't want to be in the Maybe program this anymore. Is, and right. it's probably like an advanced course, you know, like, like a pre-AP, AP kind of thing, which is for like just academically gifted kids. There's no test. Okay. You either like survive or don't, whatever. Anyway, um, so I, I was in that program for like a long time and like segregated with those kids in middle school. And then at the end of middle school, in, eight, in eighth grade, I had to drop out so that I could stay in orchestra because whatever. Uh, that sounds like something I would do. Yeah. Well, uh, I was for my, my parents musically abused me. My parents were like, you know, slackers yeah, and everywhere, but they were, they were like Asians yeah, when it came to, to music. It was, was a tough call. Yeah. It was a tough call. But the reason I made it is because dropping from orchestra meant that I would be able to do it in high school, but it gifted program. It was going to be different in high school anyway. So it didn't matter, you know, and I would always be marked as in it, in my, it's on, it's on my transcript, you know, it's still there. Yeah. Um, it never like, can't shake it off no matter what, but there's a special program and I was no longer participating in it. And I noticed that when I left the gifted program and went into like just the advanced classes, which were supposed to be almost equal, we weren't told what, was, what yeah. the difference was. I remember noticing a difference in the kind of student, uh, that was in one class and in the gifted class, like the gifted students were not, they were diff- just a varied bunch, you know, a varied bunch there were jocks in there. There was preppy girls, like mm. popular people, you know, oh, so it and wasn't nerdy like people. A nerd, nerd it thing. wasn't a nerd yeah. fest. It wasn't a yeah. nerd fest, which is why I was puzzled by it because so many kids in the gifted program were not all that studious. You know, they were not the most studious kids around, but you know, some of them were really anti, like very much uh, the kind of kid that's going to drop out. And some of them did drop out um, mm-hmm. in high school. Uh, many of them, I three of the kids that were in my gifted class, just of 20, of the boys went on to play college football, you know? So it wasn't really, it was. This this totally flies in the face of your theory that we should just measure everything by IQ test because if that were the case, all these kids would get into Ivy League school and then they would blow it off and not be deserving. Well, I don't know because I think it depends on if you apply. I think if you're that kid and you apply to an Ivy League school, then you probably want that environment. And I think that- I mean, they say they do. They self-sorted. <laughs> I think it it should be sorted based on ability to some degree, in addition to hard work and grit and determination. A lot of those kids would not get into 
an Ivy League because they dropped out of high, you know, they, they stopped paying attention really, really yeah. early on. Like we lost them early for whatever reason. We lost them early. But of course, that's measure too. You know, like we have GPA matters. I'm not saying drop everything and only have an IQ test, but I think we have to have something that indicates mm-hmm. just pure ability, like pure reasoning ability. Yeah. Differentiated from everything else. Like, pulled aside from everything else. It's too bad there's not a blood test. Is somebody working on this? I feel like Razib Khan should be working on some kind of like blood, like, blood uh, you know, IQ like a, ther- a Theranos kind of thing where you just take your blood and it goes What's your into blood a type? machine. And my blood type, mm-hmm. uh, O positive, which I think is the most Me basic. too. Oh, oh my goodness. Oh, blood sisters. Um, that's very blood big. Twinsies. No, but like there should be a Theranos machine where you give one drop of blood and then it goes through and it goes around and it tells you if you're gifted or not, what your talents might be, what kind of college you are likely to succeed at. What do you think? What would, would solve all what, of this. What would you think? What do you think is a measure or how should we change the system in a way that would be fairer? <laughs> I don't, there's no, I mean, what does fair mean? Okay, how about there's just, no such thing um, as fair. how would it be, how would you change the system in a way that would be, that would, that it would function better? For society and whatever, whatever. I don't know that it can function any better. Really? I mean, I, I, no, I, you know what? I think that's the wrong question hmm. because you, what's the right question? We, the fact is that we have such a disastrous education system. Right. Yeah. People are, this, the whole idea of talking about colleges, we're talking about this because people in the media like us, like went to college and it was a huge part of our lives and it was a huge focus before we got there. And it's much sort of sexier to think about college. But the fact is, every much more energy. And I guess, you know what? I I do like the idea of a lot of these highly, highly endowed institutions sort of collaborating with K through 12 education or the public system in some way because, and fewer people should go to college. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I agree with that. I I'm actually kind of anti-college. So that, I guess that, that, I know why are we even talking about this? You don't, you're not even going to send your kids to college. Here's why, why we talk about it is because unfortunately society still cares a lot about it. Unfortunately, it still matters to employers. What, you know, the name that you have. But you're set, you've said here that you think that that's changing in the tech world anyway. It's starting to, it's in the tech world. Yeah, it is. And I hope that continues elsewhere. And I think it might, if we continue down this anti-meritocracy road, because as an, you know, as an employer, what is the point of a name brand? You know, what is the point of Harvard? The, the, The idea is that it's supposed to show something about because Harvard yeah. has done the work of, you know, really figuring out whether or not they're 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 and talented and worthy of that education. So you're you're you know you're depending on that. But I no longer depend on that in the same way. There are not. It is if I got a an application. And in fact, that that has happened like more re- recently. I got an application of somebody who's going to school at Harvard. I'm not automatically thinking that this is the, wow, I'm so impressed. You know, I'm not, I'm not automatically thinking that anymore. Yeah. You know, the other thing I'm thinking too, as we're talking about this, the entire point of going to these elite schools is to network and meet other elite people. And that is much more relevant in a pre-digital age. The only way to have access to those corridors is to physically be in them. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if now just the nature of connection and communication and the nature of access to ideas and other people mm-hmm. and audiences 
has totally changed the game and it's going to be irrelevant. Like who you're playing golf with may be much less relevant than it was. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of people still care about who they play golf with, but I would be curious in 30 years, whether that still matters, if it's it's more like who is in your like online, who's in your online community kind of thing. I think it'll, yeah, I think the signaling of college, like they, they are devaluing their own signaling uh, pretty effectively. Maybe not fast enough for us to ch- see a change like that tomorrow um, or even in a generation. But I think ultimately that seems like that's where they're going. If people can't reliably count on that as a, as a signal and they're looking for other things anyway, you know, so yeah. so a high school kid might think reasonably that, in fact, college isn't going to mean that much. I have to do something else. I have to start a business or something, you know, to, to or prove learn myself. A trade. Or learn, yeah, show, show <laughs> myself as competent in some other way. Even start having, you know, internships sooner, internships in in, yeah. in high school. I think there's too much school generally. And I actually know a lot of parents who would be really happy if their kids learned to trade. I wish I hadn't gone to college. I wish I had the degree. I know. We've been over this. Yeah. We've been over this. I don't think, I don't believe you, but I wish, I wish I had the degree. I wish I had the degree, but without having to go there. You should have done online university. You should it have wasn't done Prager University. It wasn't, I don't know what I learned. I don't know if it was useful at all. I think I had to unlearn a lot of things. You should have gone to the University of Phoenix or Prager. You yeah. know, that would have been one much or two more appropriate for somebody of your abilities and extreme Prager. You really self Prager. You yeah. For my abilities, that's a good match, Megan. No, I'm saying no. I'm Excuse because you're me. so you're so have so many abilities. I was in the gifted program. Did you hear me I earlier? Know. I know. You're saying that Dennis Prager <laughs> University doesn't have a gifted and talented program? What does, is it a real, it's not a real university. It's not a real university. I mean, their lacrosse team is amazing. What, so this is, this is another total, total tangent. But I think that to some degree, Harvard is going to come, it's going to turn into a signifier of elite, of a kind of an older elite cast of people. Yes. It's an old money. It's an old money signifier. Old money thing. Yeah. Old money signifier. Yes. It's like having an old beat up Volvo. (laughs) Like it is like, like lacrosse, right. Or rugby or whatever, whichever, whichever those two, what are the two? Yeah. Things that are just not necessary. Like the gentleman's hobbies. Right. Um, Right. Right. Yes. No. Yeah. Going to Harvard will be like, you know, having a old house on Cape Cod by the sea and your old beat up Volvo and your old money. You know, and a lot of those people like with old money, there's no money anymore. Like they're so rich that they are now broke. What does that mean? There's a lot of people like that. Well, they just people from really old money families. Sometimes that money runs out after many generations. Oh, it runs out. Okay, well. And then they're just coasting on that. Oh, I know. Yeah, I know. I know people who've uh, gone to Harvard and are now really just kind of struggling as. As what writers? As yeah. Kids. I mean, people older than me. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah. So no, I, no. It's really hard. I feel so. I feel really, those people are marginalized. I feel like if I had, I, I would have found a way to, even if I had gotten into a school like Harvard to still be poor, I think. Look, I'm really I, look, good at being I can poor. Find, I can find a way to be poor yeah, exactly, no matter what. Right. You could hand me a million dollars. Exactly. Yeah. No, no. Just hand no. us a million dollars, please. It would, we, it we, will, will we, will, do, we will invest it we will, very wisely. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Speaking of which, Speaking we need to tell which, people. Yes. Uh, uh, housekeeping uh, before we move on to our next segment. Although we've been talking a long time, and, haven't we? I know. So that might, but this is going to be worth it. We're going to move on to sure, unfuckable sure, 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 hate sure. nerds yeah, sure. momentarily. 
housekeeping. Uh, please subscribe to get to the bonus segment, which is going to be at the very end, like the very, the long episodes, every single episode, <laughs> you you really want to subscribe, go to a special place.substack.com. That is where you can um, subscribe. It's $6 a month. So cheap. So cheap. Oh my God. For, That's too cheap. Too cheap for so much entertainment. And you get access to our commentary community. That is really awesome. Really fun. Really smart. High IQ people. High IQ. We actually have an IQ test for them. We have an IQ test. It's it's a blood test. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they actually, no, it's a saliva test. It's, they spit into a tube. Yeah. And then they send it to us. Like 23 And then me. we have it analyzed, yeah. uh, possibly by Razib. And then we decide if we're going to let you in. He's going to write some comments about all this because he's 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 always. Well, he he's a, he's already in. No? He's in our comments and he's saying yeah, he, all, he says all kinds of stuff. Anyway, but he'll be he'll be he'll be there telling us why that's why, exactly why that's stupid. Razib, we know it's stupid. Okay. Yeah, I mean you say that like it's negative. <laughs> right, okay. Okay. So the found and if you are a founding member, you can uh have a chat with us on Zoom. Yeah. If you give us the big bucks, the real big bucks, <laughs> you can have access to our beautiful faces every once in a while. Yeah, um, we just we had a great one recently and we talked all about Sarah's internal monologue or lack thereof. Yeah, it was just on one topic. Sometimes that happens. I mean, sometimes there's many topics and sometimes it's just everyone has a lot to say about that one topic. So we just had this discussion of uh, what a weirdo I am for not having an internal monologue, mm-hmm. but also just what it means and what meditation has to do with it, what... Um, yeah, your sense of self has to do with it, um, how it might impact all different kinds of uh, ways that you perceive the world and other people and whether it means anything about you. And and we learned that you don't even have music in your head. I don't know what that even means. What do you mean? I can imagine a song, yes, but I don't but even don't, have like... I, I, you don't have ringworm or earworms. Or earworms or any, no. any of the worms. Um, or heartworm. Or heartworm. No. Do human humans have heartworms? It's a dog thing. It's a horse thing. Um, I don't. I don't know. It's a, yeah, it's an animal thing. Okay, you can take uh, ivermectin for it. Okay, well, I'm already taking it, so I've been taking okay. it for years. No, I can tell. That's why your hair is amazing. Yeah. Okay, so we have we're having another founding members chat on July 22nd at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Yes. So if you want to do, if you want to join and have a conversation, join us um, on our little happy hours um, every quarter or so. We we have one. We try to. Yeah. Um, and they're super fun. Yeah, you can do that yeah. by becoming a founder. And that really helps us too, because we can use this to invest in the podcast and give you all this amazing commentary. Anyway, yeah. okay, all right, next. Make it even better. Is there anything else? I'm teaching a, a personal essay and memoir class mm-hmm. on Zoom, a writing class yeah. in the fall and I'm not, for six weeks. I'm not, am I allowed? It doesn't have anything to do in? with this. Am I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm still kicked out. Well, I mean, you're, you're opposed to narrative. That's true. Uh, and story. Only so. internal, only internal <laughs> story. <laughs> it's, we're going to have a teacher writing class for Sarah's internal monologue. Now this is a, this is a class for intermediate to advanced writers of memoir and personal essay. It's going to run six consecutive Wednesdays from September 6th to October 11th. And so you can go to my Substack and find out about that and apply. Yes, you should apply. And um, yeah, I think that that sounds like a really fun course. If It's super fun. Yeah, if I had any stories to tell, I would definitely learn how to. And everybody gets to have a, yeah, instead of like marking up your piece, I'd like, I, everybody gets to have a personal um private conference with me oh wow at some point during the okay then i'm i am signing up 
I'm going to sign yeah, up. Yeah, it's what you need is more. More, more FaceTime. <laughs> Megan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to pay to um, do it. I'm going to pay to get more. And yeah, you should pay. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. So there was a, a very interesting uh, piece in, in Tablet mm-hmm. that uh, you wanted to talk about. And I agree it's worth talking about. Well, yeah, I it's, found and I thought it was interesting. Yes. It had a great spicy little title. Yeah. Um, Unfuckable Hate Nerds is the title. Are we allowed to say yeah. that on, on, are we going to get bleeped on YouTube? No, it's okay. Oh, I hope so. Oh, yeah. No, that's, uh, I always think yeah. that sounds better. A little beep, you know. Yeah. It makes no, it sound un- naughtier. Unbeatable like <laughs> hate nerds. Yes, young men are losers. They deserve sympathy, not contempt. So this is a piece by William Derezowitz, who uh, has been a guest on my podcast three times now. Wow. He was just on a few, a few weeks ago. Meanwhile, yeah, I was only on once. I know. Well, you got to do the work. Beeped up. Say. So yeah, this is um, a piece that's very much in line with a lot of the stuff we talk about in terms of like this hypergamy idea and the way women are soaring ahead of men and kind of leaving this cohort of very disenfranchised, angry, um, much maligned young men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he opens up the piece by quoting Mark Marin, the the podcaster. Do you ever listen to Mark Marin? I only know of him from that show, Glow. Okay. Well, Mark Marin has, yeah, I, I mean, I really, I really yeah. like, right. Yeah. He's a comedian and he had his own show called Marin, which was like a sort of in the Louis vein, yeah. um, like a show about his life, which was great. I loved it. Mm-hmm. He's very affable and uh, he's in his podcast. He was really, he was one of the first podcasters to do the long, mm. long format inter- interview. He did it out of his garage for years and years. He was really, I mean, he was doing this like 12 years ago, at least. Anyway, Mark Maron has, I don't listen to him as much as I used to because he's, uh, he just tends to sort of like toe the social justice line a little bit more than you would think. And, and he is one of these guys who likes to talk about other men as being sort of misogynist. So, so this piece opens up the army of unfuckable hate nerds. Mark Marin's term for the massive young men who pollute the internet with their misogyny. And so Marin says they play video games all day long. Then they watch MMA. Then they spend the evening jerking off to porn. Uh, then they put a few hours into uh, attacking women online. Sounds like my afternoon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, my every day. Yeah, I know you could do a lot of jerking off to porn. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I really don't like this kind of uh, dis- this just sort of like very re- reactionary, reflexive just dumb dismissal of men. It's very, it's just boring to me at this point, but it's so much in the air that we breathe. Yeah. That people don't think about it. It does. It does feel like picking on, I mean, and and that's what this piece sort of tries to convey that these guys are, you know, that they need to be understood, that they need to be pitied to some degree. They need to have a certain level of societal sympathy geared towards them. I think I agree with that. But I honestly, I have a really hard time putting myself in the shoes of that kind of person. And to some degree, I just have to say that I don't understand male sexuality. I understand it clinically. I, like, I understand it in the academic sense. I don't. <laughs> you mean how I, things I, actually I'm work? Book, yeah, I'm book learned on male sexuality, but I just don't know anything. I, I don't intuitively understand um, the way they feel about things. I don't have a, I don't have an easy time empathizing with the experience. So I have to, you know, when I talk to my male friends, I have to sort of run a little script in my head that's saying that when we're talking about sex or, or girls or people, you know, 
romance, um, I have to remind myself that, you know, they're different and they look at sex in a very different way, means something very different to them. And they take the lack of it as evidence of something um, that I, it would never occur to me to, to think about. I wonder if that's part of the lack of cultural sympathy because so many women just can't, they just can't think of, they can't empathize with a 17 year old that is a virgin and feels like the internet has told him that's a terrible thing, even though a lot of people are virgins at that age, but he doesn't know that. And he feels like a loser and he doesn't know how to talk to girls. He's so intimidated by them. And he's like horny all the time. You know, I, I think that's not an experience that a 17 year old girl, like you can't look back on your life and think that I had that. No, experience. Well, and women have been told that men automatically have it easier than they do. Mm-hmm. And so therefore anything that a man goes through that it's difficult or that he's voicing complaints about is just male tears. Yeah, It's so, you know, th- look, this is what I always say. It's you're, you're assuming by assuming that men automatically have more power and privilege than women, and then constantly making fun of them and talking about their tears and their toxicness and just what losers they are. We can get away with this. This is part of acceptable mainstream discourse because you're punching up. Mm-hmm. You are punching up at somebody who has more power than you. If you are a woman being misandrist, to men, Mm -hmm. but like they actually don't have more power than us anymore. Uh, most of the time. And so you're effectively handing them power. Young men by... certainly don't. I mean, and, but, no. but young men never have. That's the thing. Like, I don't know if, has it ever been the case that a 17 year old well, of, of any gender had much power? And then, yeah, I mean, I think before women were educated at the rates that they are. Sure, um, sure. sure. But like in the modern world and like, like, would, would you say um, that your dad as a 17 year old was more powerful than your mom as a 17? I mean, weren't they both sort <laughs> well, of screwed, you know? Um, I think, well, because I think even at that time, it would have been assumed that men would, uh, you know, have a career and have an education and that women were going to get married and at a pretty young age and Mm -hmm. have have babies. Mm -hmm. Or if you're a woman, you were going to be a nurse, a teacher or. Right. So I have it hard in that specific way. But from the the idea of like society hating you, I think young men also have to prove themselves. Like it's not the case that we look upon a male person who achieves nothing as valuable just because they're male. I don't think that's true. I don't know if that's ever been true. I think it's male value has always been tied to how successful they are, um, you know, proving themselves in in the yeah, world so and the, conquering things. Right. I mean, the online feminist would tell you differently. They would say men have always been valued by society. The world hates women. They will go through all of that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think what this point, you know, what, what he's saying in this piece is that young men, other than a very small, uh, the fortunate few, the born rich, the strikingly handsome, the six foot three, uh, have much less social power than your just average woman. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious what you think about this paragraph. So he says, any young woman who is even moderately attractive will be courted, complimented, paid attention to by women as well as men. Older men will buy them things. People will hang on their words, even when they aren't interesting and laugh at their jokes, even when they aren't funny. They will have entry into places, private clubs, backstage after a show. Young men can only press their noses against. They will be able to advance professionally by batting their eyelashes at powerful men. Young men, meanwhile, those losers, those loners, those apes are left to pick at their psychic zits on the periphery. This is a very, um, I mean, this is a, uh, this piece was obviously uh, written to, this is a very 
um, provocative piece. It's actually, it's very, it's a I departure like it. for, I like it. Yeah. It's a departure for, for, Builder Rezowitz, but um, I saw the response on Twitter, and it won't surprise you that people are now sort of just sweeping this into the manospheric repository. You can't. It, it, there's no way to be sympathetic to men um, online and not get just totally destroyed. Um, especially if you say what he did, which is young women have it okay. Actually, especially if you're attractive, you have it okay. What he should have done is not said that thing. You know, he should have said young women have it hard, too, in different ways. You know, <laughs> you have to acknowledge that. I think he does. I think he does do that. Yeah, but I, but, I, mean, I mean, he couldn't. Yeah. It, making that comparison is what makes the feminists mad. Like they just they want to be victim number one still, you know. And so you can't say, actually, I'm a bigger victim than you sometimes. That's they're OK with acknowledging difficulties in the life of a of a young man. They're not OK with saying that 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 guy actually is the real victim in, you know, in his social yeah. context. I mean, this is, it's funny because I had a conversation uh, about this next week on, on the unspeakable with Lucinda Rosenfeld, who wrote the piece that we talked about in the New Yorker about having the affair with her college professor back in, in 1990. And we talk about something that comes up a lot in this piece, which is the assumption that when we talk about young women, we're talking about very attractive women. So I guess like the one I don't know if I'm picking a bone exactly in this piece, but I do think that I think a lot of people assume that even the ugliest woman can get laid yeah. very easily. Yeah. And I don't think that that's true. Yeah. And in fact, if an ugly woman is going to get laid very easily, that's almost certainly going to be a very bad situation. Yes. For her. Yes. Yes. I agree. Um, I think it's interesting that pe- people just see beautiful women and, or you know, moderately attractive women and that's it. Yeah, you're not noticing all the other ones. Yes, they're invisible. And yeah. like below then, you're just, yeah. Well, what about all the other, what, they're truly invisible, not hated. You know, like we don't, I don't think we yeah. hate homely young girls, but we definitely just don't, we don't see them when we consider, we don't consider their pain um, as relevant or worthy of discussion either. It's always the attractive women um, and their power. Uh, and I, I, that's my, that's actually my bone with a lot of these menosphere I mean, there's yeah. a lot that's wrong with many of them. Because not that that's what's happening here, but um, so much of it is just like written out of a sense of grievance. And sometimes that can be, you know, a grievance that's totally, you know, worth, you know, discussing. And sometimes it's grievance plus hate plus, you know, a lot of other psychological problems going on. But I've noticed that the online guys talk about when they talk about women, they're almost always talking about attractive women. Like so much. No, they're of talking they, about women that they want to sleep with. Because that's the all they the only interest. Right. So much. It, they say women say women, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, attractive yeah. women, actually. That's only true about yeah. attractive women. I think when we talk about women, we're talking about all women. We're just talk, we're talking about we're, we see we see everybody. We see them all. Yeah. We don't see attractiveness or unattractiveness. No. Um, we're attractiveness blind. Yes. Um, it, but these guys are not. Yeah. And that's very interesting to me. You know, it really, it's really telling because that's who they are looking at. They can't help but talk about women as if it's mostly attractive women because they don't even see, <laughs> they don't even notice. And, right. And this is the thing, like, is this, how much of this is a function of like d- dating apps? Because I mean, we, again, like the whole hypergamy thing is that now, well, part of it anyway, is that now that women don't rely on men for economic survival, they can support themselves. They can live on their own. They can have babies by themselves. Mm-hmm. You don't have this sort of automatic population of like, you know, average looking kind of, <laughs> kind of mediocre women to be paired with the mediocre men. Mm-hmm. 
Like it used to be that not everybody could find a mate easily, but it was certainly much more. It was just kind of straightforward. Like you met somebody at church or like you were set up with somebody. It was something you needed um, to do as a woman. You know, it was something you ne- you needed to find a man as a woman. Historically, that's been yeah. the function of marriage has been not to, I mean, again, feminists are so, feminists are so wrong on this point that I, I actually, th- this one really gets on my nerves that obviously marriage exists to tie men down to the woman and to the family. Obviously, mm-hmm. of course, because nature has already screwed us over. Yeah, really well, to bad. protect right. the in, to protect the offspring, to protect the offspring, to be able to t- provide for the offspring while the woman is like basically incapacitated. You know, like she's pregnant, yeah. and she can't, she cannot provide. But yeah. she's also in da- she's also in danger. You know, in the and I'm talking way, way back, like how the institution of marriage developed. Without marriage, you have young women well, who not, are vulnerable. Okay, but marriage, like ma- pair mating. I mean, like marriage wasn't going on. And in- what has become, what has turned into marriage? Yeah. You know, what we now call marriage, but it, but it existed in various forms. Like a, you know, even in like more ancient civilizations, you always you had something like yes. this. Yes, um, but it wasn't always romantic. The romantic component of no, no, uh, no. The romantic is new. The romantic is entirely pair, new. Pair bonding. Um, is new. Yeah. It was always nice if it if it existed, but it was not required, not necessary. It was a truly inclusive uh, institution and that you could be gay and be forced into a marriage by your parents. (laughs) That's as true of the straight guy as well as the gay guy. Um, It was so much better and more inclusive back then. Yeah. Um, But but it is the case that that women needed marriage. They needed it to really survive um, and thrive in their environments. And so they got, so the community wanted, wanted marriage because they didn't, you, you it, it's not great to have a bunch of fatherless um, children uh, who are, you know, who don't have anyone to provide for them because a mother cannot provide for them. It's just like, a, there are a lot of bad things that happen. So marriage made sense. Um, and marriage was a way to tie men down to the family, to the woman, to one woman and to the family and tie his resources down as well. Now that women don't need it, you know, now that women can survive and thrive without marriage, now that they can ha- they can be mothers and they can provide for their children without a man in their life, they're not pursuing marriage in the same way that they were pursuing it before. They're pursuing it for different reasons. They 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 want status, they want romance, they want or love at least. They want a lot. I mean, more, they're like, still pursuing it for some of the same reasons. It's not totally some different, of the same but reasons, yeah, but I not, think yeah, it's not it's not a life or death. It's not a situation. life or death. It's situation. not a matter of survival. Not at all. Anymore. Right. Not at all. And you can you can actually have a good life. You know, not a maybe not the most fantastic life, but you can still have a good life as yes, working in some business somewhere <laughs> it's, and it's, having it's having possible. you have friends. You have true. you know. But I'm, yes. I'm not talking. You have a, an amazing life, but I'm talking I about. Know. I'm the. I'm talking about yeah. the uh, look. I mean, there's a lot of bad marriages out there. Sure. A lot of people have a much better sure, life sure, sure. on their own. Sure, uh, as sure. But what married, happens so, when yeah. women say no to marriage? You know, like when women say no to to pair bonding, uh, you have this uh, indirect consequence of men uh, not having access to sex in greater you know quantities than before, and and maybe and feeling like maybe they never will, right? Like, so you're 17, you're an unfuckable hate nerd. Okay, you think that when I'm 21, when I'm 25, I'll find somebody. I'll find some woman. No, they, um, when they're when they're 45, they'll find somebody. I mean, this is the no, thing. I'm at, I'm like, at way back, way back when. You know, oh, like right. way back when yeah. you would. Now, like you, yes. you'll find somebody in high school or in college. You'll find somebody. Now you might never. Right, even 40 or maybe never. Well, this is right. I mean, and the thing is, you're talking about these power differentials. So, like, the logic would be so 
very an attractive young an attractive 25 year old as we'll talk about in the bonus you know some would say she is at the peak of her power Mm -hmm. like a, a beautiful young woman has more power certainly than even an attractive young man of her own age mm-hmm. She's going to lose as she gets older. She's she's going to lose that power. But the unattractive young man is going to he has the chance to gain power. He's going to gain status. He's going to make more money. He's going to be much more eligible as an older person. Yeah. So I think that people sort of forget that it's like women get it. They've got their power early and then it goes away. Yeah. And men have a lot don't have are, are lacking a great deal of power when they are younger. And I feel like that's the thing that nobody talks about. And that's what this piece is about. Nobody talks about that. Power differentials are intense, I think, when with young women and young men. But again, yeah, you're right. It's not that's not what people talk about. Instead, it's like uh, how this creepy guy pressured this one girl into yeah, and how older men are taking advantage of younger women by dating them. And that's creepy. Well, the younger women are dating those older men for a reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they are offering the older men are offering them something that men their own age just simply cannot. Yeah. And who's coming forward to the young man to offer him anything to the to the person? Right. Exactly. Like, um, I think. But it's interesting, too, to see how the two different experiences can play into the different politics that we as sex, different sexes take on or are inclined towards, you know, like you as a young man, there's a grievance sort of mindset. <laughs> like I, I don't, you know, everybody hates me. I hate the world. The kinds of the no hate nerds that this guy is um, uh, talking about. I don't think that's, that's true all the time, but there's a sense of, of truly being disempowered, also despised by society, recognizing that you have to, you have to make money. You're going to, you're, you're valued for this and this and this, like, and explicitly being told this sometimes that this is your value and this is your worth and without it, you're worthless. Without it, you are where, yeah. you know, this is where you are and this is where you will remain. And, you know, even if you're 45 and you've, now you've achieved everything, you are married, you're happy, whatever. I think those formative experiences, you know, those times Mm. when you were, you know, from 17 to 25 or whatever, when you couldn't get a woman to look at you and you were angry, I think that they help you understand your world and form your politics, you know? And- Oh, I thought you were going to say they scar you maybe they life and that you're bitter, still bitter forever. I bet they still, even if you're not bitter, I bet they just give you a different understanding of of the way things are and how they should, you know, consequently how it should be. Well, you know what it's like to be down as opposed to like women, beautiful women who age- I think that takes them a while. They have a very different, yeah, they have a very They have an entitlement that it takes a a long time for them to be. So have you felt that as you like. As I lose my, my extreme beauty. Yeah. Have you known like women that you would like when they were younger would be very beautiful. And as they age and have you like, do you have any experiences of, of seeing a woman with entitlement become less entitled as you grow Oh, have you seen um, that tra- that transition? Because I'm at that yeah, point where I mean, I'm starting to see it, but I'm not <laughs> not quite seeing it. I mean, I don't. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I'm trying to think if I know anybody too well who was just like all about their looks. I mean, I don't. You know. Yeah, you were um, in a different circle. Like, yeah, I, I didn't hang around with a lot of su- supermodels, but I mean, certainly, I mean, that was the thing about. Uh, <laughs> This is a little bit of a side point, but not entirely. Like, you know, when I was in New York, in New York City, in these like media circles and publishing, it's such a female dominated world. I mean, New York City has more single women than single men by like a lot. I was actually talking about this with Razim. Mm. 
when I uh, met him a couple of weeks ago in, in Austin. Uh, and, you know, it's because of what, what kinds of businesses are there and what kinds of industries and finance. The fact is that these finance guys, they tend to pair up young and move out of the city, like by the time they're in their early 30s. Mm-hmm. But like the women there would be incredibly smart and high achieving and also incredibly beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like they had it all. Oh, yeah. And that was the sort of standard. And then, you know, I would notice. So back in my time, there was you would definitely notice that these like guys who really couldn't measure up were with these incredible women. They, they were definitely punching above their weight. They were dating above their station. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them even admitted it. Now, that was before the digital era that was before the dating apps Mm. that was before all of this. Mm. And so I think that has been a radical change Mm. because those women don't have to just, their, their dating pool is so much bigger. They don't have to settle for like, you know, the guy they know from work who is like not really as smart as them. Mm. Uh, it's, it's changed. So I don't think you had this bitter manosphere thing quite the way you have it now. I mean, right. it's always been there. There's always been guys with their mail order brides and stuff, but it wasn't like, well, there's just less sex happening the- at that age, you know, no, regardless, regardless of the reasons, like the first, they used to have more sex because they were married. And then now, then they used to have more sex because they were dating and there was like an active sex life culture or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now they're having just a lot less sex in general. Um, Maybe, maybe that, I, I think maybe that that seems to be improving. I, I read that somewhere. Oh, um, people start finally starting to have more sex. Yeah, yeah because Trump, you know, because Trump is gone. Yeah. People with Trump, who could have sex? Yeah. You couldn't even possibly. I didn't have any. You know, sex if you were a guy, for... you couldn't get it up. If you were a woman, you were just yeah. not in the mood. You know, yeah. no way. Four, so now four, that, four now years that of... we have Biden, yeah. everybody's super, okay. super turned on. All right. On that note, um, um, yeah, let's t- time to move on to the bonus and say goodbye to these guys. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. So stick around. We're going to talk more about this. Stick around to the bonus, bonus peeps, um, and to everybody else. Yeah. Thanks. See you. See you next week. See you next time.